Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard, the president of Gospel App Ministries. This is a, a series I'm doing in the Gospel Rant through the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the Beatitudes right now. This is the third message uh, in the Beatitudes section, Matthew 5, 3. We're looking still at the very first Beatitude. If the Beatitudes are the capstone of the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3 is the capstone of the Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Before I get started, I want to just beg you to to like the podcast, wherever you pick up podcasts, follow it, uh, share with others, comment if you can, if your podcast uh, provider allows that. Uh, If not, contact me directly, bill at gospel-app.com, and follow us on Instagram, gospelapp, all lowercase, one word, G-O-S-P-E-L-A-P-P. Okay, let's get right into the Beatitudes. Helmut Thielicke says this, these poor people have the signature of Jesus on this proclamation, blessed be, quote, declaring that the heaven has been opened to us, even when everything around us is locked tight, even if there should never again be any improvement and future, any merriment or laughter in our lives, we have the signature which certifies that in everything God works for good with those who love him. And that now, but actually only because that signature is valid, it is precisely the empty hands that shall be blessed, because they have long since lost all human hopes and consolations, that the worst sinners shall be comforted, because even the last shreds of any illusions as to their own consequence have been stripped away from them, and now for the first time God has a chance to work in them. He who dares to live in this way, in the name of this miracle, in the name of this opened heaven, will see the glory of God, the comforting stars of God shining in the darkest valleys of his life, and will wait with all the joyful expectancies of a child for the next morning, where the Father will be waiting with his surprises. Blessed are you because the door is really and truly open, and the Father's hand is stretched out to you as long as he who came in the name of the Father stands among us and proclaims, nay, fulfills the words, blessed are you. Close quote. Oh my goodness, I love that. So, what does it feel like to get it? I mean, to be in that state where you're macorioi, you're blessed, to be ushered into that place where Jesus notices and proclaims you or the people that day blessed. Well, we get some sense of what makarios or ashray in the Hebrew feels like in Psalm 34. The brokenhearted and crushed in spirit feel the wonderful closeness of God to them. That's verse 18. It's unexpected. It's wonderful. They look into his face, and when they do, they feel radiant and no shame, no condemnation. That's verse 5. Not what they expected. They, no, no matter if they are the so-called righteous or the beat-up anawim, which is the Hebrew for those at the bottom of the society's food chain, the tokoi, feel that they can cry out and be rescued. That's verse 6 and 17. They are comfortable taking refuge in him and have learned that trusting their own merit and strength is just not helpful. Verse 8 and 19, they begin to experience actual trust and hope in him. Something has happened, something new and exciting, something that they likely had stopped longing for, or maybe they thought others better than themselves could get it, but not them because they were too far gone. Well, not so. 
Jesus proclaims to this crowd on this hillside in Galilee and to us today, mixed humanity, all races, skin colors, religions, sexes, addictions, wounds, mommy and daddy issues, all socioeconomic demographics and mother tongues. And he cries out, you are Ashrei, you are Makarios. So, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the people with Jewish backgrounds there on the hillside, remember we argued that, that it's mixed, it's a, it's a universal group at, at, the, at the, uh, the base of that mountain. But the ones with specifically with the Jewish backgrounds would have likely been familiar with Ashrei proclamations, blessed be proclamations. For instance, Ashrei is the one who delights in wisdom and pursues understanding. Ashrei is the one who doesn't sin. Ashrei is the one who gives to the poor. Ashrei is the one who has found perfection. Ashrei is the righteous one. But that's not what Jesus says. See, this would have been a little head shaking for the for the Jews in the audience. The the rabbi or priest would have looked out into his audience right at the synagogue and pointed to a person who seems secure, at peace, a synagogue leader, someone who publicly gives to the poor who fast, right? Uh, a person who prays in public, a solid reputation of being righteous and perfect. And he, he would say, see that person? Ashrei is the person who does those things that this person is doing. And God is definitely pleased with that one. And God's favor, you can see, is just washing over that person. So everyone else, go and work hard to be like him or her. But that's not what Jesus says either. The uh, the synagogue leaders would never have said Ashrei or Makarios over this crowd, right? By the way, or for that matter, over Jesus himself. Jesus is unique in saying these things. And the idea for us today as we're listening through this is, is we're to receive that acclamation ourselves and be changed by it. I'll say more. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So Jesus seems to be saying, right, nine times in a row in this capstone of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, that there is now for those who are there, in them and around them, a high state of being, of experiential honor, of living, uh, relationships, um, significant security, belonging, and it's all being expressed powerfully on that hillside in and among these people because Jesus is there in and among those people. It's not because they earned it or deserved it. Frankly, that wasn't working for them. That had not worked for them. And I would imagine many of them had just given up. It is a place that Jesus created in the moment. This moment, by the way, now, as the Spirit hovers over the formlessness and void and the ravaged hearts, minds, lives, relationships, identities, sexualities, there on that hillside, and then speaks into it to create something new. Light in the darkness, to pick up some of the Isaiah imagery from from a couple of podcasts ago. Intimacy, penetrating their loneliness and isolation, their shame, their lack of connectedness and enoughness. They are in it, and it is in them, and it is theirs, and they are it. And, And he'll say that, actually. So call it an embrace of God. That's not bad. Call it a kiss of God. Uh, referring to the Song of Song of Solomon's in the Old Testament, uh, the subject of my first book co-authored with Colleen Pepper. If you haven't got it, oh my goodness, please, it's, it's, it's quite a read. You can call it a touch of God, the positive measuring gaze of God towards them. But the thing is, 
they are now no longer the same. They're not just tokoi anymore. They're makarioi. And how do you respond to that? Well, they can choose now really not respond as victims because they are makarios. They came lost. They came riddled with issues and complaints and uh, shame and woes, but now they're makarios. Jesus and his spirit accomplished this. Well, so will they get it? Will they see it? Will they hear it? Will they follow? Right? Time will tell, but that's the that's the thing that's supposed to happen. So on that hillside, he doesn't make them righteous Jews. Right? There's no circumcision going on, at least that we're aware of. Um, so the righteous Jews were the ones who would have expected to enter in that state or be proclaimed in that state of Makarios. But he proclaims these people as they are Makarios. And, and then I'm sure says, go and be righteous, right? But that's not the usual order. And frankly, they had no way on their own of becoming Makarios. There was too much water under the bridge, too many hindrances, too many faults, too many shame, too much shame. They had failed too many times. Many of you hearing this podcast will relate to this. Why would you keep trying or, or even hoping? These people could only hope for a brief respite from pain, if Jesus touched them and healed them, healed their mental illness, their addiction, their oppression, their diseases. But he says, Makarios are the tokos in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, I like Scott McKnight's summary of this particular, or translation of Makarios. He says a, a fulsome translation for Makarios would be God's favor is upon. I'm going to go a little bit different direction. But I like that. This crowd would not have expected to hear that. And nor would the, the Jewish leaders in the crowd expected any Jewish rabbi to say that over these people because it would have felt like enabling. All right, poor in spirit. So who is acclaimed by Jesus as Makarios? It's the tokoi in spirit, the poor in spirit. Here's a quote from, uh, from Bruner. The word for poor persons, tokoi, which comes from the verb toso, to cower, to cringe, means the abject poor, the abysmally impoverished, those completely dependent upon others to make it. Probably in our country, some of the much maligned welfare poor. E. Percy believes the best translation is undone, pathetic, miserable. So, I love that. Undone in spirit, pathetic in spirit, miserable in spirit. All right, back to the quote. Tokos was the strongest word for poverty available to Matthew. The gospel poor are the poorest of the poor and probably not those who choose to live simply or in modest poverty. Rather, the gospel poor are mainly society's marginated people, the city's underclass, the worldwide wretched of the earth. The poor in spirit are those who have reached the bottom spiritually, emotionally, and psychically too, who cannot live without God's supernatural help and miraculous intervention. For all such desperate persons, for all those who for all those whom the world calls failures, God is especially there. Close quote. Oh my gosh, if that message would be rolling over the walls of our churches, people would come. Well, some argue that Jesus is referring to those who are spiritually destitute. So just focusing on the spiritual. So they're lacking spirituality that Jesus' followers should exhibit, or who now see and admit their spiritual emptiness. 
So there's something spiritually lacking in them. So think faith, maybe. But honestly, as I'm reading the people who argue that, I'm not quite sure what they mean by spirituality or spiritual poverty. It seems a little bit confusing. Look, truth is, all all Jesus followers, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you've been saved, you have the Holy Spirit in your inner being. You don't partially have the Holy Spirit. And isn't that enough? I mean, in the same vein, Luke says in his Beatitudes, blessed are the poor. And I think everyone is more or less in agreement that he's talking about those who are financially destitute. I think Matthew means much the same, or it certainly includes the financial and physical aspect as well. Here's here's where I've landed. I've come to see that the Tokoyan spirit is an idiom referring to the person who is just totally impoverished. And that would include mentally and spiritually and emotionally and economically, all demographical markers, all the way through their very being. The Tokoyan spirit are, are the lowest of lows in all categories. They're broken, right? They're not just broken financially and they're healthy spiritually. They're broken spiritually and financially, and they can't or won't fix themselves. They may or may not feel the lack or the brokenness or the lack of spirituality, because frankly, so many hurt people are in a depressed state or have emotionally dysregulated or, you know, they're in the middle of self-medicating the pain or being addicts, meaning they may not even be aware of much that's happening in their brain. And that's the point. It's not about their action or lack of actions or their awareness of where they are, their humility or lack of both. It's, it refers to people who are stuck. They're in deep, deep, deep holes. Honestly, part of their own, some of the, the holes are of their own making. But honestly, the more they dig, the deeper the hole gets. So even if they stop digging, they're still stuck and they're still in darkness. That's the people. Look, I mean, to some degree, all of us, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, if 10 is that, all of us are tokoi in spirit to some degree, maybe fives or four or threes. And it goes, it's fluid, right? It, uh, some days I'm, I really feel tokoi in spirit and other days not so much. But Jesus isn't just scanning the crowd to, to pick out the 12 people or 10 people or 20 people who are spiritually ready to receive, right? I mean, that's kind of the implication of uh, some people. Uh, he's not looking around to see who's open to being changed. I, some say that, but honestly, that would end up you know, being a mere fraction of conversions. And wouldn't that just be another form of works righteousness? It's Jesus has come for those who are ready. I don't, I don't, I think Jesus is far more powerful than that. So Jesus's good news, I think, is better than that. He makes this official announcement, right? Caruso, uh, look at Luke 4.18, that the only prerequisite is that you're lost and stuck, that you're needy and you can't dig it out. You, you got a hole and you can't dig yourself out of the hole, whether you know it or not, whether the hole is a foot deep or 20 feet deep. You're not going to come close to fixing your situation apart from being rescued. You won't get your humanity back unless Jesus reaches down and grabs you. You won't enter the dance, um, the heavenly celestial dance, until the dance opens up and a hand reaches out and grabs you, kicking and screaming, and throws you into the dance. By the way, that's the theme of our online gospel intensive, The Dance, www.the-dance.org. Uh, boy, I would really encourage you to take a look at that. So the ones who are, who are the least likely to the extreme of ever being enviable, much less feeling it, 
who have no shot at this fullness, wholeness, self-actualization, according to Maslow, based upon any residual righteousness, and maybe they've just stopped looking to God or, or religious institutions for help, still, they're not excluded from the favor of God right now. Uh, Scott McKnight argues the other side of this, that Jesus is speaking about the one who are both economically, physically impoverished or oppressed, and yet, and here's what he says that, that I'm pushing against, is they still recognize his or her need, and but they also trust in God for full redemption. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not seeing that laid out here in Galilee, the recognizing your need and trusting God for full redemption. First of all, um, I think that's a it's a multi, it's a broad audience there, Jewish and non-Jewish, atheist and and uh, and Jewish. I mean, all unbelievers. In this case, nobody's trusting God for full redemption, not in the way that, that Jesus would have us, right? And if we if we say that Jesus has just come for those who are trusting God for full redemption, that becomes a, a work righteousness. That frankly, these messed up people the tokoi, must do before Jesus's acclamation kicks in? I'm not just, I'm just not seeing that laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. I understand why we want to go there, right? It seems like there has to be a little thing where we earn it, right? But these people on the hill, the way that are described, there's no hint that any of them are running to Jesus to learn about God or because they trust in God. If they were Jews who trusted God, they'd go to Jerusalem. If they were pagans, they would go to their priest and their temples. If they were secular, if they were atheists, they wouldn't be looking to God anyway. And yet Jesus has come for them because they're tragically lost humanity. These people were not trusting God. I don't think that's the image or relying upon God. Like, not like McKnight seems to imagine or other authors. I don't want to be picking on McKnight. His commentary is is really quite good. So if I'm right, this really good news for those who've just stumbled into this podcast, or maybe you were tricked to listen to it or bribed to listen to it, who you would describe yourself as an agnostic or an atheist, or or maybe you're a pagan, you're following some other religion or some other beliefs. Look, listen, let me dare ask, what if some god, a divine personage who you weren't aware of, but all of a sudden made you feel Makarios, made you feel honored, more honored than you've felt in a long, long, long time. Would would that be a interesting, a game changer maybe? Or would that at least be something that ignites a, a new investigation into Jesus for you? And, and that's my hope. Look, this is what Jesus continues to do. Check out this passage from John 9. It is, it, it is the Sermon on the Mount fleshed out. Actually, it's this first verse fleshed out. Okay, we're going to be looking at Jesus healing a blind man. Whoops, you know, didn't want to give that away. <laughs> the blind man can't fix his situation. He's not trusting that God is going to heal him. He's not looking for God to heal him. He's just looking to survive, right? And so he's, because he's blind, and right, it's not his fault, he is suffering societal shame, particularly in that honor-shame culture. He can't change that either, he can't become a person of honor. He just physically can't. But Jesus comes along and, you know, the, the heavenly circle opens up and Jesus ushers him in, grabs him into a Makarios state. Not perfectly, 
But just listen to the transformation. Remember, he was a person of shame in his community, obviously wondering or believing that there was some unknown sin where God was punishing him. Certainly the community thought that. And and now he is a living dishonor of God's discipline to the, his family and tribe. Why would he go to the temple to hear that? He wouldn't be welcomed there. But look at what Jesus does as his spirit pours out on his blindness. John 9, 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Meaning, if I could interpret this, so this man is living in shame. Somebody's being punished. Somebody has has caused this and is due this. Was it his, was the man? Was it the parents? This is what the culture thought. And imagine the people on the hillside in Galilee. All of them thought they were people of shame because of something they did or someone else did. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. All right, so here's the formula. Who sinned so that this person couldn't be Ashrei, couldn't be Makarios? Jesus says that they were missing the point because this person was living in shame so that Jesus could come and everybody could see what Jesus's power would do. And from Jesus's point of view, heavenly point of view, kingdom point of view, that's worth it. Verse six, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Verse eight, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. I mean, so, you know, the culture is thrown into chaos. But the man himself insisted, I am the man. Well, how then were your eyes opened, they asked. And this is a loaded theological question, and and I think John's having some fun here. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Now, uh, point, Jesus didn't tell him to go get circumcised, go to the temple, repent of your sins, even follow me. All he had to do was just go and go and wash, right? I mean, this is, this is an amazing, not only a, it's an application of Makarios to this person who wasn't looking for it, or as far as we know, had earned it. He was just there when Jesus was giving out Makarios, Okay. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Oh, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, meaning Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs, right? They, some of the crowd were a little, uh, they, were, they were snapping to this, right? So they were divided, the Pharisees, right? And their formula is, blessed is the man who obeys Torah. Makarios is the man who obeys Torah, right? And that would be very much in the, in the realm of the Makarios in the Old Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. Versus Jesus, who says, 
Makarios or Ashrei are the blind that he touches that are in relationship to him. See, two, two, two different formulas, and they overlap, and it's in that overlap we find truth. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Again, I think John's having fun with that sentence. The man replied, he is a prophet. Okay, that's safe. Verse 18, they still did not believe that he had been blind. <laughs> uh, definitely burying the headline here. And had received his sights until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Oh my goodness. Is this the one you say was born blind? You say this. <laughs> the, right, this conspiracy. How is it that now he can see? And the poor parents, they're scared of the Pharisees. They're scared of losing face. They're scared of shame even more so than they love their child. I mean, I'm being a little judgmental, but come on, uh, listen to the rest. We know he, he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Oh, I'm so sad for that, for that young man. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Shame culture, so powerful. We live in a shame culture today. It's growing, it's increasing. And, and certainly a lot of uh, institutionalized religion would be more or less a shame culture. So they couldn't stand up and laugh and joyce, rejoice and dance in the miracle or be comfortable with a God who blesses the supposed cursed, blessed people like his, their child, right? So... There's, how, how do you reconcile the shame of how they treated their son if, if you know, if, ah, they should have acted differently? All right, verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Oh, my goodness. He, and the, the former blind man replied, well, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. It's over my pay grade. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. So... I can't explain God's plans or works, particularly with the, the tokoi, but I experienced it, right? That's what he's saying. I can't explain it, but I'm in. So I can't tell you why Jesus said this over this hillside and who is in and who is not. All I can tell you is I heard it and I'm in. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Once again, John is being playful. He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Ears to hear, right? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? God bless this former blind man. I love that. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Hmm. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Ah, very sharp. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out of the synagogue, right? Um, they had excommunicated him, in a sense. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. 
Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Brilliant. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come to this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. I love that, right? I think this is what was happening in Galilee, right? In, in, a, in a broader sense. And this is Jesus's pattern. This is passion, his ministry on, on earth. Read Luke 4, 18 to 19 again. This is his core passion. He was dragging lost, unaware people into the experiential favor of God. We don't know why or who or how. We just know it was done. And I will tell you, it was done to me. I wasn't looking for God at the time. I, I was drugged into the celestial dance, kicking and screaming, but I was changed. And this is what Jesus was doing all around in Galilee and in Syria and in all of those places, the Decapolis. Like the people on that hillside, this blind man had little case to make to God or Jesus for healing, for sight. In fact, there is no record. He was even pursuing Jesus or asking Jesus for that. He was there, probably sitting on the edge of a road, uh, begging. And Jesus walks into his presence, right? He, if you will, he climbs up to the hillside and sits and begins teaching and blessing this this young man, so to speak, metaphorically. So consider that another hillside, metaphorically. He received physical sight, then he received spiritual sight. No one could be more in a state of Makarios and have done less for it, because Jesus did it all. The formerly blind man received and followed. I mean, did you hear the changes? Who felt God's favor? Was it the religious leaders? The religious leaders weren't in a state of Makarios, even in all of their righteousness. But the blind man, who was not righteous, became Makarios. And by the way, not even his shamed parents, which is really tragic. See what Makarios Jesus can wrought in such tokoi. Um, Jesus puts himself, and this is Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner. Jesus puts himself in his opening address squarely on the side of the wretched of the earth. Praise God. Right? Is that the message we're proclaiming to people or, or people? That's not the caricature of the church today. Poor in spirit <clears throat> will just not benefit from trying harder. There, I said it. Right? They're stuck. That's why they're poor in spirit. They're not going to work themselves out of that hole. They can keep digging that hole, but it's only going to get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. More shame, more failure, more falling short of expectations, God and others. That's why the poor in spirit regularly leave our churches, because they, they're tired of, of feeling shame every time they come. Does this resonate with, with your experience or people that you know? Jesus is also not saying that there is something meritorious about being poor or impoverished. In church history, that philosophy and interpretation of this has reared its ugly head, head at times, and I get why we want to read it that way. We're used to the typical way that ashray proclamations are shouted. Blessed are the ones who work real hard at... And so some would say, blessed are the ones who become spiritually poor, uh, give away all their wealth and, and humble themselves for the sake of Jesus. So they sell all their wealth they, wealth, they leave their job, their family, and they become poor like ascetics, for instance. And so certainly God will look down and bless them because of this verse. Um, so blessed are the ones who become spiritually poor. No, uh, no, Jesus' point is that that these people showed nothing meritorious. Think of the blind man. He, he's not blessing them because they did anything. Jesus brought that. He was their merit. And by the way, that's part of the point is he will be their merit. The only one who is humble enough to earn merit is Jesus. 
They just needed to hold up empty hands and receive. Then Makarios. Dallas Willard is pretty clear. But is that what we're supposed to do with the Beatitudes? Be like that? Meaning poor? Frankly, most people think so. But they could hardly be more mistaken. More common than such outright rejection of Christianity so understood is a constant burden of guilt conscientiously borne for not being or not wanting to be on this list of the supposedly God-preferred. This kind of guilt also feeds a morbid streak that unfortunately persists in historical Christianity and has greatly weakened its force for good in history and in individual lives. On the other hand, Pride often visibly swells in those who think of themselves as conforming to the blesseds, close quote. So perhaps the bad interpretation that God blesses those who become spiritually poor, which again is just another form of works theology, that can be seen in those historical Christian communities who hold up humility and submissiveness as, as traits that God responds to and that God has to reward. But Jesus you know, he's not speaking of those who choose to give up pride, however, whatever muscle group you do to do that, and those who become humble. Again, you know, I'm a big fan of attachment theory and inner working models. We just don't have levers on that. Uh, the ones who just turn the other cheek and, and suffer for it, and God looks down and sees that as rewardable. No, Jesus is modeling something far crazier than that, far more outlandish than a new works where the truly reformed religious people, if they want God to favor them, they have to do this or give up that right or capital or free will or follow God. This is so different than that. This is so much more outlandish. It's offensive to me to think that Jesus was using these poor people as show and tell from meritorious humility or saying, you're so fortunate to be blind or to have been abused or cast out of your marriage or families. Come on, God help us. These were the needy, unlikely. Think lepers. They're unclean and they will always be unclean and will never be, never on their own be able to impress God. And Jesus says to them, blessed are you, because, and, and solely because he is with them. He is reaching out to them and touching them. God in the flesh, he is with them. And I mean, really with them face to face, not as a judge, but as a empathetic rescuer. Heaven is now opened up to them and for them. Here's Telechi again. Quote, because he is present, because he is in the midst of us, he comes not as a teacher, but as a savior. These are not just words, words, words. Something happens to us. Close quote. The Isaiah 32 king that we spoke about in a previous podcast is here now, and they're benefiting from that. They are ashray because of that. Jesus begins with people who don't fit anyone's notion of being or earning ashray, who no one would look to and be envious of, and he says over them, ashray or the tokoi, right? Makarioi or the tokoi, not the tokoi who see it at last or who are trusting in God in their pain or who get their act together and are meditating on the Torah and attending the synagogue or promise they will. Remember, many of them would just be unwelcome in the synagogue anyway. Lepers, prostitutes, Gentiles, tanners, shepherds, tax collectors, right? Uh, He's not saying if you just do the temple washings and offerings, if you begin to act righteously as outlined in the Torah and the rabbinical writings. No, Jesus is saying, Makario, Ashray, 
are you as you are because I am with you. Your experience of ashray is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon me. And you technically, technically God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So follow me. He doesn't say Makarioi is the man or woman who does fill in the blank because he is going to do it all in their place. It's better to see what Isaiah says in 32. Blessed is the one whose God-ordained king now rules over fill in the blank as they are. The Makarios ness is credited to the king and God's spirit, not the readiness of the people saved. Jesus's Beatitudes bless persons not because of the virtues, but because of their inadequacies. What made them ashray in the sense of enviable templates for others to see and follow? Because they were touched and loved by God, as they were. That's what makes them enviable. It's what everyone ultimately is made for. But wouldn't it be better for Jesus to just shut up and heal them? Now listen, you can be unhealed and still experience the state of Ashray or Makarios. Well, which is better? Being healed and not experiencing the state of Ashray that God meant for us, or not being healed and now feeling God coming alongside of you in your pain and anguish and whispering in your ear, you're my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Hmm? Which one's better? Well, the correct answer is both, right? healing and ashray. But, and that's heaven, by the way. But one is superior, clearly. How unloving would it have been for Jesus to just heal and not offer them an experience of the favor of God? If Jesus... He's God, right? So he's always experiencing a state of ashray, humanly speaking. What what happened on the cross where it appears that ashray, Makarios, was ripped off of him, where he said that God had forsaken him, which would clearly be the opposite of ashray? Here we go. I suggest it's important that those still in the state of ashray, because you can't separate and split the Trinity, that's, right, that's over my pay grade, but that's how I'm holding it. Yet, humanly speaking, he was not experiencing Ashray for a moment. So he was in that state, but he wasn't experiencing it. And that's my experience daily, by the way. I know I am Makarios, but most of the day I don't experience it. I can go for hours, even days, not experiencing it. You're probably too. John Calvin rightly argues that that's one of the reasons we have the Spirit in our inner being, Ephesians 3, and it's his is his passion, his wheelhouse, his secret workings to make we tokoi in spirit experience the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus every day, a little or a lot, to experience the state of ashray, a makarios that Jesus paid for 2,000 years ago. I do want to address another point of interest. Many people hear Jesus's acclamation in 5.3 and suggest that Jesus is saying that the ashray experience will only be in the future or largely in the future. He's speaking of the eschatological kingdom yet to come. Think Psalm 32, uh, the Psalm 32 king. Now, while I agree he is speaking of that glorification that is ours and yet to come in heaven, certainly there's also a present experience, a little or a lot. Think back to the blind man or Peter who proclaims Jesus as the son of God because God made him see. These are little mini kisses or little mini hugs of our future perfect experience of Ashray that we can begin to experience now, and all we have to do is ask. Well, 
as far as we know, until this time, God has never proclaimed anyone Ashray. Throughout the Old Testament, God never proclaims anyone Ashray. But Jesus, God, does here. The Sermon on the Mount is the first time God has done that to Tokoy in spirit. Isn't that interesting? More to come. Like, follow, share this podcast with others who need to hear it. Be that missionary that can do that and so change the lives of the people you love. Check out my Instagram, gospel app, one word, lowercase, G-O-S-P-E-L-A-P-P. See you in the next Gospel Rant. Take heart, child of God. There's no better way to start your day than spending time in God's Word and in prayer. Don't know where to start? We have a free daily prayer podcast created to help you do just that. The Your Daily Prayer podcast delivers a thoughtful devotional and timely prayer to you seven days a week. Gain inspiration, faith, and encouragement with daily messages in 10 minutes or less. To start listening now, search Your Daily Prayer on your favorite podcast app or visit lifeaudio.com.